Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. I have to ask you a question in your capacity as the former, what was it, Dr. iTunes? No, Mr. iTunes. iTunes guy. iTunes guy. <laughs> yeah, iTunes guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You were the iTunes. You, were, you used to write a column for Macworld called The iTunes Guy, and people would write you questions. And uh, and I consult you occasionally, and I'm going to consult you now. Does the music app still do multiple libraries? Sure. On on the Mac, you press the option key. Just after you click the icon on in the dock or double-click the icon, you press the option key immediately. Then you get that dialogue asking you to choose a library or create a new library. I think on Windows, you press the shift key at launch. Yeah. I mean, I completely forgot about that, and I'm thinking about maybe doing it because i got to do some screenshots and stuff, and I don't want to use my real library because it's a mess. Um, so that's one Why thing. don't you just use your other Mac for that? Um, See, that's what I do. I use my laptop for all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I haven't got it set up that way right now. Right now, I've got one machine. I have two machines, uh, a Mac and uh, an iMac and a Mac Mini. On one of the machines, I have my regular library not connected to uh, iCloud, and then the other one is connected to iCloud, so that I have some uh, networking available. I can iCloud stuff. I can listen to stuff on the phone. Right, that's what I do too. Um, but the the standard just files library, I think I'd like to make a sub library of that, so I can you know dress it up and have cool playlist names that. People sure, will giggle okay. at when they say, you know, you want to dress it up. You want to, you know, it's like you shoot screenshots. It's like shooting a movie. You got to have, yeah, got to have set decoration and things like that. Yeah, and the number of times you shoot a screenshot, you realize something was wrong. <laughs> oh, the cursor time. was visible, or the there was a track playing, so you got to stop because you don't want a track playing. And no, you know what I do to fix things like that? I open it up in an editor and I try to uh, fudge it. Like if there's a cursor, I try to like erase the cursor i don't bother with that or if like if if like uh what's one that i do frequently um uh, an app uh, an apple script that i have shows too many results it's like you've Mm -hmm. got five thousand dead tracks it's like no one's going to believe that so (laughs) i just chop out two zeros (laughs) so it's like you have 50 dead tracks things like that because and the reason i do it is not because i don't want to do it again it's because I want to do the editing in Photoshop or Acorn or whatever I'm doing in it. So it's kind of funny. Well, I try to make screenshots. Like you said, no one's going to have 5,000 dead tracks. So I don't try to make my screenshots believable. Right, exactly. Readers of my That's articles right. or books will be able to relate to them and not have things that seem abnormal that will cause them to ask questions in their mind. Exactly. If you do something that's a bit out of the realm of possibility, people start wondering if maybe their system is more screwed up than they think. So if you show them right. something reasonable about, or uh, an example of what they can expect, that's reasonable. Exactly, yeah. And that's one thing. So anyway, the reason I'm bringing all this up is because I'm doing my annual, my annual, as I call it, mega updation of some of my Apple scripts. I, as most people know, I think, I write Apple scripts that work with the music app and the TV app and for some people, actually, and for quite a large percentage, still using iTunes, and uh, it's which amazes me. We should talk about that. Because, let me just tell you something. I hear from people who 
what what did one guy say recently? He says, I'm still on Sierra. I don't even know what that is. What is that? 10, 11, 10, 12, 10, 10. Don't even bother looking it up. That's about yeah, five years back. Ago. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to look it up. I think Sierra, Big Sur, Catalina. I can't do it. What was just before know. Ventura? I can't even remember what was before Cannot Ventura. I remember. It's like, that's why I'm glad they're going back. They're trying to get to numbers. I think we're at 13 now, right? So that yeah. makes sense. But anyway, this guy tells me, I'm still on Sierra for the speed. And it's like, well, I understand you don't want to buy a new computer, but there are there are reasons why you you should that are pretty serious. I mean, we do another podcast where we talk about security. And, um, you know, one of the things that isn't going to happen is you're not going to get updates and things like that. I suppose that's a decision that you can make on your own if that's what you've decided to risk. And on top of that, if you're using a computer that old, it likely doesn't have an SSD. And the amount of a speed gain that you'll get from an SSD, when I had my first computer with an SSD, it was it was day and night. And while it took a while to get SSDs on all my Macs, because they the, the first one I had was the first MacBook Air, and someone had gifted me the first MacBook Air with an SSD, which was hugely expensive. It wasn't for a couple of years that I was able to get another Mac with an SSD, but I mean, I, I, how many years has it been now that we've had SSDs on iMacs easily? I never had one of those fusion drives because they were problematic, but uh, the biggest speed gain you can get on any computer, Mac or Windows, is switching from a spinning disk to an SSD. Yeah, it's, it's tremendous. Absolutely great. Anyway, back to your Apple Script um, update-a-thon. Updation. It's called an updation, yes. um, okay. which is a word I just came up with last week. Um, yeah, so uh, it's remarkable that that I think it's remarkable because I always worry that this the bottom is going to fall out of people using the music apps, the media apps. But it's not true. And one of the reasons is that, first of all, for the past 20 years, or at least for 10 years, the first 10 years of the past 20 years, Apple has trained us to like files. If you look in your library and you've got 2,000 tracks in there that's two thousand dollars that you spent on tracks yeah even if you yeah. bought a cd and ripped them you're still talking about like a dollar a track it's a big investment for a lot of people and it's very difficult to say i don't i don't need those anymore i can't even do it i can't let go i mean i could easily just stream <laughs> all the time um it doesn't seem it's not but a problem there's still things you can't get on apple well, music that's true there's too. still things so for instance one of my favorite brian eno albums is another day on earth and i believe this came out about 10 or 12 years ago it's not on the streaming services for some reason so there's always things most new stuff is available but you've got this gap of older stuff that for whatever odd reason of licensing or rights or copy or something just isn't on the streaming services uh, you know famously king crimson held out for years and it's been 5 years now but there are still occasional things if i i don't have my laptop right in front of me but if i went in there and i looked at my smart playlist for tracks that are no longer available there are literally more than a thousand and this is in a library of under forty thousand tracks so this is my apple music library that syncs and everything and there are more than a thousand tracks that are no longer available that's really amazing it was confusing at first but I'm, I'm kind of used to things like that happening now um you know it even happened in the store remember there would be um albums that would appear and disappear from the iTunes store every so often. Same must be the same but reason. You could usually if you had already bought them, you could usually download them in your previous purchases. Though I found a few that I couldn't. 
that where I lost a track on an album for some reason and it wasn't, it was no longer available. But this goes back, you know, the iTunes store is 21 years old. It's or almost 22 years old. It's not that long when you think about it. I wonder, I haven't bought anything from the iTunes store in a very long time. Do you suppose that people still do? Um, it's hard to tell. What was the last thing I would have bought? I bought Casablanca when it was $5 a few years ago. The movie. Right. I but that's a movie. Think, How about music? I can't remember the last music I bought. It, it's been a long time. Yeah, me too. But I, I am imagining that people still buy music that way. Well, I don't know. You go into the iTunes store and you see a banner. When you're looking at a, a, a record, an album, you see a banner. By the way, you can stream this on Apple Music. And they're just telling everyone you don't need to buy it anymore. I'm sure there's a long tail, the same as your guy running Sierra. Right, That right. sort of thing. It's the same guy. Yeah. And can you? there's no iTunes store on the phone, right? Of course there is. Oh, there is. Okay. <laughs> I yeah, haven't even there, seen there's it on an there. iTunes store app on the phone, <laughs> unlike on, okay. on the Mac. Uh, on the Mac, it's called iTunes Store in the music app, but it's not called that in the TV app anymore. What do they call it there? Or do they even have that? Well, they do have a store, but it's just, you just look at what's there. You just oh, go to the course. store tab right. and you see everything. Right. It's been a long time since I've used TV. But it's yet. not called iTunes yeah. Store. Yeah. Boy, I got to brush up on this stuff. I got to stay aware. But anyway, I, I'm doing my annual updation where I, I make sure that, well... A good handful of scripts, easily a hundred or so, are they're the most popular, the most used, they're the most you know requested, are are up to snuff, and that's what's going on right now for the next couple of weeks. So, it's a lot of fun actually. I've forgotten. I don't know why I wait a year. I should be doing this all the time, but I found that when I do it in these marathon sort of uh, uh, I don't know month long uh, coding. I don't know what else to call it, uh, coding parties that I have for myself and doing it full time. <laughs> uh, it really is beneficial. Make sure everything is consistent and that sort of thing. Well, you don't want to do it all year long. You want to do it after the new operating system comes out, but you don't want to do it too soon, right? So Mac OS comes out in October now. You don't want to do it in October. You want to wait till whatever dot one comes out. So November is a good time to start, I would say. Unless you have anything that's important that's not compatible, then you may have to make an update more quickly. But yeah, I, I see the the interest in doing it all at once because you're blocking out your time. You're, you're turning it into a project instead of a bunch of little tasks. That's right. Exactly. It's more, yes, it's much more like a large project that I must work on. And uh, it's, so it's much more comfortable to do it. But uh, it's surprisingly, I'm, but like, I, uh, like I've just been talking about, I do hear from quite a number of people who are using iTunes or music, and it's still a vital part of, of their music listening experience. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, Happy New Year. Oh, I suppose so, yes. We're, we're recording this on December 29th, but since it won't come out until January, we can wish a Happy New Year. And we can point out that Apple had promised that classical music app sometime in 2022, and reneged on that promise and i wonder what's holding them up well who knows maybe who knows who kn well, i don't know so here's what i think here's what i think they bought a company called primephonic that had an app that was a curated selection of classical music and it was 
In, in my experience, it was limited because when I had last looked at it, they didn't have all the major labels. So they had a good selection of indie labels, but they didn't have all, I don't think they had Deutsche Grammophon. Of course, they did by the time Apple bought them, but when I looked, they didn't have them. And they had selections and they had all these articles. And one day we need to do an episode on why you should why it's wrong to think people have to learn about classical music to appreciate it. We need to get, if we can get Andy Doe back on the show, if he can get off his lifeboat for an hour, I'd like to talk about that because that always surprises yeah. me. Stop saving those, stop saving those drowning people, Andy. We need you on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just uh, our friend, Andy Doe, who's been on the podcast several times, he left the music industry and he works for the Royal National Lifeboat Institute where he goes out in storms on a boat. Anyway, the idea that you have to learn about classical music to appreciate it or to listen to it is something that I think is detrimental to classical music. But what I think happened with Apple is they bought this company and said, great, we're going to just dump all our classical music into this app. And then they looked at the metadata. Right. And they saw how bad the metadata is. And it's pretty good for newer records. I want to say the last five years, major labels, really? some independent labels. It, it's gotten... Only the last five years? I'd, I'd give it about five years, yeah. Hmm. That enough people have complained and made it a thing that the labels are paying attention. And there, there are some labels that have always had really good metadata, some smaller labels. But it's the majors. It's all the back catalog. And... Was it, it was more than 15 years ago that someone approached me with a goal of creating a classical music database. And you worked on this project a bit. Said person had sold a company and had bank account with many zeros and was a big supporter of classical music. And eventually, I think he got made off and the project ended. But we spent a number of time looking into what it entails to get all this metadata right. Now, we weren't the only ones doing this. This was about 2005, 2006. There were some independent metadata projects going on, but the scope of this, back then the idea was to provide this metadata when people ripped CDs. Now that's not too hard. You can identify a CD and as long as you've identified it and you've got the metadata, you can rip it and the metadata goes into it. And this is how it works. People have seen how that works when they insert a CD in the music or iTunes app. It's a, it tries to uh, uh, get you the metadata from Grace Note, for instance, and if there's if there's any ambiguity, it asks you which of these records are you right. talking about. But the problem is that the metadata that's fed to Grace Note is not always good, and so this I think is what Apple found that the only way that they would be able to actually launch this classical music app, I, I want to say they need to have eighty percent of the catalog with good metadata. Maybe that's too much. Maybe fifty percent is enough because we're talking about a huge catalog. Can they say, okay, we get all the major labels, Philips, EMI, Deutsche Gramophone, et cetera, to get good metadata? And let's say all the mid-list indies like Hyperion, Harmonia Mundi, Beast, the, the well-known mid-list labels? Or do they hire people to enter all the metadata, which involves data entry, which involves checking that data? which involves probably a third check to make sure it's okay, like simulating putting a CD in or doing searches to see what shows up, because I think Apple just did not realize the scope of this project. That would take a, a, a research department. They would really have to set up a research department to do this if they were going to do it by themselves. I think that's a great idea. I hope that's what they're doing, because 
you know the record companies are going to drag their feet. That's just what's what they do. Their their prime job is to go kicking and screaming into the future, and they don't want to do anything. that They're like car dealers. They'll do anything to sell something, but they don't want to change anything if it'll sell one car. Like, they won't take the ashtrays out of the car if one person <laughs> would say, I like ashtrays in the car. Um, it's where you put your spare change. Or keys, or yeah. bobby pins, or yes. paper clips, or yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's the same thing with record labels. They really don't want to change anything unless it means they're going to make some money. So right. changing the metadata. Well, but again, again, in the last five years, I, I want to say five, but maybe it's seven or whatever. Since streaming has become so common, all the labels do provide good metadata, all the big labels, not the small indie ones, because they know they have to. It's the only way that people are going to find their stuff. Right. But we've got we've got decades of back catalog that it's just it's it's just a mess. And when you go into when when you search anything, I mean, the fact that I can find a record of uh, I, iTunes, I believe it was in iTunes 11, they added this, the ability to have works and movements. So when it, instead of having just songs, you could put a work and a movement. And when you see a classical recording, you see in bold the name of the work and then underneath the, the track numbers with the names of the movements. And that's really practical. If you don't have that, when you look at a classical record and you don't see that, it's just wrong. If... Uh, you know, assuming it's not just one movement pieces, which it generally never is. Yeah, it's uh, it's too bad that the, it. Well, it's too it's well, it's almost too late now. But um, I'm glad it's being rectified. I mean, early on, it was pretty obvious to anybody who liked pop and jazz and who also liked classical. It's like you can't put these things together They're It's a totally different thing. You know, recording artists and are one thing, but classical pieces are something else. And you can't talk about them in the same way just because they're just because they're both music files. It's they have they right. have different things about them, and it's unfortunate that no one ever really. I mean, some people did. I mean, I, Discogs has a, a handles classical music pretty well, but I mean, for the most part, they it, they just got off to a bad start when it came to you know digital media. That's that's too bad. And now, but like I said, if you say it's it's been the past five or seven years that they've started to correct this. That's a very good thing. Although I don't know how they correct it. Well, in the past five or seven years, what I mean is the record labels have provided better metadata. And I think streaming services have required it, or at least Apple has demanded it. I just want to point something out. I just went to the music app and found that Apple made a change that I was not aware of. If you go to browse and then you scroll all the way down more to explore, there is a link now for browse by genre. Oh, yeah. Now, you well, no, it was categories for a long time. Oh, so there right. is browse by genre, there is decades, moods and activities, worldwide charts and spatial audio. So if I go to browse by genre, now I see instead of just that plain text list, I see album artwork for each genre. It looks like the same people on most of the pictures or some of them don't. So Apple Music Classical. And if I click that, I'm taken to the classical section of Apple Music where I can browse. And it takes a moment to load, even though I've got gigabit fiber. So that's not a good sign. A lot of metadata in there. And it's still, here we go. Yeah, a lot of metadata. So I'm going to just click on the first album that shows up. And this is something by the London Symphony Orchestra, A New Dawn. So here you can see the work and the movement. So 
Dun Matin de Printemps by Lily Boulanger, London Symphony Orchestra and Jonathan Hayward. And it's just one track, so it's one movement. Then Violin Concerto in A Major, Opus 5, Number 2 by Joseph Bologna. And so that's, and then Suite from the Firebird, etc. So that's the work and movement thing. Now I'm just going to click on a random, let's see, another... So I just clicked on a random album in the more like whatever. Copeland conducts Copeland, expanded edition, Columbia Symphony Orchestra, London Symphony Orchestra, etc. This is a record from the 60s or the early 70s because it's got that stereo 360 sound logo on the top. This was on oh, Columbia Records. Yeah. And 25 tracks, and it is fanfare for the common man, Appalachian Spring Suite, etc., etc. There are no work and movements listed. So all you have is you do have artist information, but the work and movement is not entered. It says this was released in 2000. Let's see, originally released 1963, 1966, 1970, 1971. So you're saying the individual movements aren't even listed as tracks? They're listed as tracks, but the works aren't listed as works. Gotcha. In other words, you've just got a series of tracks. You don't have... Here's the name of the work with the subtracks. Here's another one. Stravinsky conducts Firebird Suite. Here's another one. Leonard Bernstein conducting Romantic Favorites for Strings, Barba Adagio, and other Romantic Favorites. And of course, you've just got these names here, but you don't know who the composers are. Mm. Who's the composer of the Adagietto from Symphony Number no. 5 and C-sharp minor? I know it's Mahler, but most people won't. And so this is the problem with metadata. This is a 2004 release, so it's about 20 years old. This is the problem that Apple has to deal with. And if they haven't gotten it on like all of Leonard Bernstein's recordings or Copeland conducts Copeland, which are, I want to say these are in like the top 20% of, yeah. you know, well-known classical stuff, then they've got a long way to go. I mean, I know, I know that music that you're talking about and yeah. I'm not a big classical fan, but I know all that stuff. Um, yep. Yeah. I guess it just shows it's very inconsistent and it's still coming together, but. I guess there are efforts being made. You know, I guess if you know what you're looking for, it may be more troublesome to find it, but you can eventually find it. Although, how many how many Appalachian Springs are there, and how and what are they all? I mean, how similar are they? Well, here's another problem. Is there metadata? Here, here's another problem. There used to be an advanced search in iTunes many years ago. I don't remember whether that was taken out. So you could look for a title, an artist. And you had a number of different possibilities. You I, you might have been able to choose a year range, things like that. So if you want to find Appalachian Spring conducted by Copeland or Bernstein, you could do searches for that. Now you're going to get a couple dozen hits, which only scrapes the surface of what's available. I mean, anything like that, you can't get an endless list like you can when you do right. a Google search. Well, maybe you'll have to do the search outside. But how do you get to Apple Music from that search? That's the well, point. Then, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You can't just go to Google. Like I used to get album artwork by searching Google with site colon store.itunes.com, something like that. And you'd get album artwork that way. It was an easy way to do it. You can't do that anymore because they've blocked the search for that sort of thing. And you can still search in Google for things, but you're going to be looking for a recording. It's going to show up in, in Apple Music. It's going to show up in Spotify and Tidal and in record stores and everywhere. So it doesn't, the whole point of this is to make it easy to find classical music. That's what's needed. We don't need anything to play classical music because it play, it's just files. It's finding the classical music that's a problem. Yeah, right. And it's always been the problem. Yep. Um, so, they added a new feature to the iPhone. 
and that's the karaoke. Um, I, wait a minute. I got to say this because this has been bugging me for years. I use, I've worked at radio stations in different states. And in some states, they call it karaoke. And in other states, they call it karaoke. And so I remember going to New Jersey and, you know, had to do a club spot. And Wednesday night is karaoke night. No, no, no. We don't say karaoke here. We say karaoke. Well, that's what I thought it was. But back in Connecticut, they used to say. So I don't know where karaoke comes from and why it's a corruption of karaoke. Because karaoke is so, it's so obvious that it's karaoke. But who heard that first as karaoke and then everybody picked up on it? I don't understand that. Some guy in Georgia who didn't have his glasses on. It's got to be something like that, right? And it's like, it's not an American word, so he figured, well, I'm just going to pronounce it any way I want. Really weird. Really strange thing. But anyway, have I don't have, uh, I think you need a, a, an iPhone 14 or a 13 or something. Whatever phone it is, I don't, I can't use it. I have a 10. Oh, right, because it requires a certain chip. So what it does is it uses the chip to, I think, just kind of zero out the frequencies of the voice. And it has a way of detecting the voice when it comes on. And it removes those, so it removes the voice frequencies, but it removes all the other frequencies that are the same frequencies. So right. it, when you turn down the voice, you have a slider and you can turn the voice down gradually or all the way. When you turn it off, it's kind of, you're missing a lot of the music, but that's not the point. The point is that you're singing along, so you don't care. Right. So if you're, if you're listening to, if you're listening to a guy singing along with a cello and the cello falls within the range of the guy's voice or a woman's voice for that matter. Then if you pull the voice out, the same frequencies that match the cello are also going to be pulled out. So you may not have a recording of a man singing with a cello anymore. You may just... Yeah, but this isn't in classical music. No, this I know, but I'm just I'm using the cello as an example of something that that is approximating the human the frequencies of a human voice. But I'm sure there are guitars and pianos and things like that that do the same thing. I haven't searched yet to find if there's anything where it's just voice and piano. But that would definitely sound weird because the piano is often around the range of the human voice. You know, if, if, if you're doing like an old Broadway standard singing along to the piano, you're going to have piano notes around the same range. But yes. So, yes, this sing thing. I've never done. Is that what it's called? Sing? It's called sing. I think it's just called sing. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've never <laughs> done karaoke, but I must admit, I see it a lot in movies. There's always, in rom-coms, I don't watch a, a lot of rom-coms, but occasionally I do. And there's always someone singing karaoke because I don't know why. <laughs> well, here's why. Because it's a, first of all, it's a popular activity. Usually they can get some kind of ironic song that they're singing, right? It's like, oh, look what the song that they're singing, how ironic. Um, it's in a social situation so they can get more exposition it's partying with, with a group of friends, so you've got this, you know, there's a lot of things and that you can alcohol. do with a scene like that. And there's alcohol. And that's the reason clubs yeah. do it, is because in order to sing karaoke, you got to have a belt or yeah. two. In and it. you got to keep your, so it really your mouth lubricated, hydrated. Whistle wet. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. So that's why clubs like it. That's why Wednesday night is karaoke <laughs> night or whatever. I watched a Chinese movie the other night, and karaoke was... Not a major plot point, but there was a karaoke thing going on, and that was important. To, someone was looking for a singer. Would she be at the karaoke night? And it seems to be extremely popular in Asia. And I just don't 
Like, I can understand if you're drunk, right? And you're with your friends and you're going to sing Born to Run and everyone's going to laugh. But I don't see the pleasure of listening to people who can't sing well. Occasionally, you probably have people who do sing well, but... But how is it fun? How is it fun to embarrass yourself? Maybe that's just my perception, not having grown up in a karaoke environment. Well, it's just for fun. I've never participated, but I've been at clubs where they do it. And everybody loves it. I mean, people love making fools of themselves. Or sometimes you get someone who really does a nice job. Or who does a, oh, you did a really nice job with that song. And it's not Born to Run. It's like, you know, some kind of... You know, Taylor's mellow Taylor Swift ballad or something or some Adele song or something. And, you know, it's it's fun to see amateurs try it. I, I, I've never seen like professional singers do it, but I'm sure it's at parties that they have. They have they do it, too. You know, if you search didn't, on Amazon for Millie karaoke. Didn't Millie Vanilli do that? What's that? Didn't Millie Vanilli do karaoke? <laughs> oh, sort of. Yeah. Um, if you go to Amazon and search for karaoke, you're going to find a ton of of karaoke machines and uh, adjacent equipment it's it's very popular it's not of course it, much more popular in japan oh china yeah. i think even more so in china but um and, and but it's popular here in the united states there are people that like to do it i can understand why people would want to you know you go you go afterwards with a group of people after work you all act like idiots then you <laughs> you go back i mean isn't that what isn't that what life's about isn't he acting like a bunch of idiots? Yep. Should we talk about some next tracks? Yeah, go ahead. Sure. I got one. I okay, got one. I do too. And I don't have music, but I have something that's related to music. There's a novel by Andrew O'Hagan called Mayflies that I read recently and that actually just was on the BBC in a two-part, two-times-one-hour adaptation. It's about music because it's a bunch of Scottish kids who go to Manchester in 1986 for a big concert that was the the festival of the 10th summer. So punk started in Manchester when the Sex Pistols played at the Manchester Lesser Free Trade Hall in June of 1976. So in 1986, they had a festival and these kids, they went and particularly to listen to New Order, The Smiths and a couple of other bands. And so... The the novel is in two parts. The first part is them going to this thing. And then in the second part, you find that one of the characters has cancer. Now, the TV adaptation was interesting because instead of separating it into two parts, it goes from the present to flashbacks, which is actually structurally, I think, a better way to appreciate the story. And you learn about the cancer right away because you've read the thing in the TV guide that says, you know, so-and-so has cancer. And so you know about it. If you're reading the book and you don't know, you're getting halfway through the book before you get to what's going on, right? So really touching you know, really profound novel about dying and all that, either the novel or the TV adaptation, which by now, when you're listening to this, is at least two weeks old. If you're in the UK, it's on the iPlayer. What's interesting is to see how young men, so 1820-ish, bonded around music, which is, you know, our experience also, that, that for them going to this big concert in Manchester, where they'd never been, you know, like the home of, you know, so much music, was their lives, right? It was this important moment for them. It was like that last summer before they went on to live. So Mayflies by Andrew O'Hagan, linking the show notes to the book and the TV. Doug, what have you got? 
Well, I've spent most of my time avoiding a lot of the music that I used to play on the radio because I'm really sick of it. I mean, I, I, I cannot tell you that the numbers of songs, I don't, I don't ever want to hear the Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks, Fleetwood Mac ever again. I mean, I just don't need to hear those songs. But the other day I was looking at Twitter and I follow a couple of international radio stations and someone was playing Hello Again by The Cars. And I go, I know that song, I think. How does it go? And I couldn't remember if it was a ballad or I couldn't remember if it was like whatever it was. So I said, what album is that on? So I said, oh boy. So it's on Heartbeat City by The Cars, which was... It came out in uh, 1984, and it's probably most famous for the song You Might Think, which has a great video, which MTV played the hell out of. In fact, they played it They played it so frequently. I remember when MTV got the first version of the video for You Might Think, and it wasn't finished. And at the end, there's a sequence at the end where Rick Ocasek kind of unscrews his face, and uh, and it comes off, and it says the end or something. They didn't have anything there. They said, this video was under construction. So that's how long ago, long I go back with this Heartbeat City album. But anyway, the, I, I remembered the song, Hello Again. It's a, it's a techno pop song. It's really great. I forgot how good it was. And then I'm looking, this, song, this album has magic on it. It has drive, and as you might think. And the actual uh, song, Heartbeat City, the title track, which is the last song on the album, is pretty good. Now, I haven't listened to this album in maybe 30 years. I mean, I played Hello Again just for a, a minute or so, and I said, wait a minute, this is going to be my next track because I've got to listen to this. But I was really surprised by how fresh and clean and perfect that song Hello Again is. I mean, it's perfect techno pop. And I'm not a big Cars fan. Uh, I did see them for 99 cents at the Providence Civic Center when they had just put out their first album, but we only went because it was in the middle of an afternoon and we had nothing else to do. But, I mean, I, I just remember the cars. I'm so involved in the cars. I shouldn't be listening to the cars, but I am going to listen to this album because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big moment in, the, in 80s music history, I think, this album. It's, uh, it's, the videos from it are classic, and they're, they were able to, um, I don't know, introduce techno pop in a, in a, in a really terrific way. So this is my next track, Heartbeat City by The Cars. This was episode number 246 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining. So, listener support, your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adamson for Kirk McElhern. Thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.